0: bombay <laughs> da
1: I'm telling these tears going, fall away, fall away, oh May the last one burn into flame
0: I meditate for practice. Channel 9 news tell me I'm moving backwards. Eight blacks left, deaf is around the corner. Seven misleading statements about my persona. Six headlights waving in my direction. 5-0, 5-0, asking me what's in my possession, yeah, I keep running, jumping the aqua, that fire, I and hazard. hazardous, smoke alarms on the back of us, but mama don't cry for me, ride for me, try for me, live for me, breathe for me, sing for me, honestly, in me, I can be more than I, gotta be still from me, lie to me, nation, hypocrisy, go on me, driving me wicked, my spirit inspired me, like, yeah, open correctional gates in high desert, yeah, open our mind as we cast away oppression, Open the streets and watch our beliefs and when they call my name inside the concrete I pray it forever Freedom, freedom, I can't move
2: Freedom, cut
1: me loose Freedom, freedom, where are you? Cause I need freedom too I break chains, I'll my myself On not let my freedom ride in hell Hey, I'ma, I'ma keep, keep running, running cause
3: My name is Colette Gelwicks. I use she, her pronouns. I'm a white woman with long brown hair wearing a sea green top this morning. I'm a member of your board of trustees and it's my pleasure to welcome you to worship at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. As we begin, we honor the Piscataway people and their ancestors. It's upon their land that we reside. We are served by the Reverend Paige Getty minister as well as a talented and dedicated team of religious educators, musicians, and other professional staff. Much appreciation goes out to the many lay leaders and volunteers, as well as those, as well, I'm sorry, as well, whose incredible efforts and dedication help to keep us connected. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, whoever you love and whatever your faith tradition, you are welcome here. We particularly welcome any guests joining worship this morning. We encourage you to fill out the visitor's form in the lobby or online and connect with others in the virtual or in-person coffee hour after the service so that we may meet and welcome you. We have several special guests joining us this morning from the UU Fellowship of Beaufort, North, sorry, South Carolina to Reverend Lori Lobin and others from UUFB joining us this morning. Welcome. We're so glad you're visiting with us. Finally, for those attending worship in our sanctuary at the Owen Brown Interfaith Center this morning, please take a moment to turn off or silence your cell phones and other electronic devices. So we have a number of announcements this morning. Um, All are welcome to attend this morning's 1130 a.m. climate forum entitled Land Rights, Extractivism, and Environmental Justice. We hope to see you there. Calling all youth. If you plan on participating in youth events in the coming year, we hope to see you at today's 5 p.m. planning discussion. You can find the Zoom link on the website calendar. This is the final week to sign up for a reflection group. Joining a small group is a great way to strengthen relationships and make some new connections. Are you interested in helping UUCC thrive and achieve its mission? The Stewardship Council has an opportunity for two well-organized and personable individuals to lead UUCC's annual pledge drive, which provides over 80% of the funds for the operating budget. For more information, please connect with UUCC member Jim Reiser. UUCC will have a booth at this year's HOCO Pride Fest happening Saturday, October 9th, and we hope to see you there. Volunteers are needed to help with setup and takedown along with staffing our booth learn more by viewing the event on our website calendar and now we'll hear from uucc member ken walsh about volunteering as a sunday usher
4: hello i'm ken walsh my pronouns are he and him in the pre covid days you may have noticed me occasionally ushering on sunday morning this congregation is my community and like any community it needs the help of all of us to sustain it I love helping out by ushering. I like to meet people and to help a few. I pick a service on our sign-up genius, show up 20 minutes early, greet folks, take attendance, pass the collection basket, and count the donations after the service. That's it. I hope you'll consider joining us as a periodic usher.
5: Good morning, UUCC and friends and guests. My name is Paige Getty. I use she, her pronouns, and it is a privilege and a pleasure to worship with you this morning, whether you are here in the sanctuary or joining us from another location in Columbia or in another state or country or county. I join Colette in especially welcoming Reverend Lori Lobin and members of the UU Fellowship of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're glad you're here with us today. In addition to all the announcements you heard already, please remember that this Wednesday evening, September 29th, we are holding an information session about next September's walking pilgrimage in Italy. If you're considering going on that trip, please contact Reverend Rob Hardys to get the Zoom link for Wednesday's information session. Um, Thank you. A few housekeeping notes as we begin. If you are here in the sanctuary, in addition to turning off those devices, please do not join the Zoom meeting, which confuses the systems if that happens. We do have hearing assist devices in the back at this tech booth if you need them. Everyone can find the order of service online either using the link in the chat or the QR codes that are posted on the screen here or in the building. Later in the service, we will honor our community members' personal joys and sorrows. So either write yours in the book at the back of the sanctuary or email them to joysandsorrows at uucolumbia.net. And finally, as Colette said, if you're a guest today, please complete the visitor form so that we're better able to stay in touch. Now, there have been some questions about protocol, so I want to clarify that here in the sanctuary, everyone is remaining masked throughout the service except for speakers when they're here on the chancel and they are invited to remove their masks, but they're not obligated to remove their masks if they're vaccinated, only when they're speaking up front. So for those of you who had questions about what's going on with us and masks here in the room, that's what that is. And again, thank you to all the staff and volunteers, virtual and in-person hosts and ushers and an extraordinary tech team for making all the -the behind-the-scenes magic happen each Sunday. This morning, special thanks to Tom Monroe, who's on the piano and chose all our music, to staff members Valerie Hsu and Robin Slaw, and to lay members Eileen McIntyre and Hope Vasholtz, all of whom you'll hear from during the service. So today marks the beginning of the annual observance of Banned Books Week. Banned Books Week observance began in the early 1980s at a time when there was a surge in the number of challenges to books in schools, bookstores, and libraries by people who were organizing to block access to certain literature. Banned Books Week celebrates the freedom to read and seek and express ideas even those that are considered unorthodox or unpopular. Some of the best, the most well-written, most moving, most challenging, most inspiring, the best fiction I have ever read has featured characters whose lives are not like mine. Through fiction, I better understand the true stories of people who are poverty-stricken, who are asexual, who are Appalachian, who are uber wealthy, who are black, who are autistic, who are enslaved, or who are in any way different from me. And in honor of Band Books Week, today in worship, we celebrate the ability of stories to humanize, to heal, to inspire, to delight, to encourage us. We celebrate the power of stories that challenge us that amplify marginalized voices, and that expand our thinking. So in celebration of the stories that break open our minds and hearts, let us worship.
6: Good morning, my name is Valerie Hsu and my pronouns are she and her and our chalice lighting this morning is from the essay Silence is Broken by Rebecca Solnit. In the beginning was the word. Before that was silence and silence surrounds spoken words still as whiteness surrounds the words on paper. There is always something unsaid and yet to be said. Always someone struggling to find the words and the will to tell her story. Every day, each of us invents the world and the self who meets that world, opens up or closes down space for others within that. Silence is forever being broken. And then like waves lapping over the footprints, the sand castles and washed up shells and seaweed, silence rises again. We make ourselves in part out of our stories about ourselves and our world separately and together. A process of creation and destruction that is epic in scope and often embattled in execution. The task of calling things by their true names, of telling the truth to the best of our abilities, of knowing how we got here, of listening particularly to those who have been silenced in the past, of seeing how the myriad stories fit together and break apart, of using any privilege we may have been handed to undo privilege or expand its scope, is each of our tasks. It's how we make the world.
5: We are a covenantal community in this congregation, and so we reaffirm each time that we gather in worship this covenant that we keep with one another. Will you please join in speaking together these promises? Strengthened by our humanity and inspired by our seven principles, we promise to be a safe and welcoming community, to nurture each other's hearts and spirits, to delight in the beauty of our diversity, to struggle together on our spiritual journeys, and to challenge each other to live our values. Thus, we pledge our time and vigor to the continuing celebration of spirit, of the world, and of humankind. And now we're going to invite you to greet your neighbors, whether virtually or in person. Those of you on Zoom, we encourage you to turn on your camera, even just briefly, go to gallery view and look at all those beautiful faces. Those of you here in the room, look at the camera over the Good doors there and wave to It's lovely to, to greet one another you, in an how abriently how
2: distanced way here. Hey, everybody. Hi, everybody. I love you, good to see you. Hi. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. Hi, everybody. Hi, hi. Hi. Oh, look at you all. Beautiful. Okay. Hi, Mike. Thank you. to Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi. can Hi, I'm Hi, sure. Hi, Hi, not sure. i you I'm
7: Good morning, everyone. My name is Robin Slaw. I'm your Director of Religious Education. And boy, am I really grateful for Zoom this morning because I'm still able to join you even though my car died five minutes away from the house. Um, The video that you are about to watch is a banned book. It was banned almost immediately after it was published. And it's a true story. It's about two penguins at the Central Park Zoo in New York City and some really amazing zookeepers who believe that love is love, no matter who you are or no matter who you love. If you aren't familiar with this story, I don't wanna spoil the surprise. So I will just leave you with some questions to think about as you watch and Tango Makes Three. And those questions are, how can you help others, whether human or not, to live full lives? How can you help build beloved community? Go ahead and play the video. Thanks.
8: And Tom makes three. In the penguin house in the zoo, there are penguin families. Every year, at the very same time, the girl penguins start noticing the boy penguins, and the boy penguins start noticing the girls. When the right girl and the right boy find each other, they become a couple. Two penguins in the penguin house were a little bit different. One was named Roy, and the other was named Silo. Roy and Silo were both boys, but they did everything together. They bowed to each other and walked together They sang to each other and swam together. Wherever Roy went, Silo went too. They didn't spend much time with the girl penguins, and the girl penguins didn't spend much time with them. Instead, Roy and Silo wound their necks around each other. Their keeper, Mr. Gramze, noticed the two penguins and thought to himself, they must be in love. Roy and Silo watched how the other penguins made a home, so they built a nest of stones for themselves. Every night, Roy and Silo slept there together, just like the other penguin couples. And every morning, Roy and Silo woke up together, but one day, Roy and Silo saw that the other couples could do something they could not. The mama penguin would lay an egg. She and the papa penguin would take turns keeping the egg warm until finally it would hatch. And then there would be a baby penguin. Roy and Silo had no eggs to sit on to keep warm. They had no baby chick to feed and cuddle and love. Their nest was nice, but it was a little empty. One day, Roy found something that looked like what the other penguins were hatching, and he brought it to their nest. It was only a rock, but Silo carefully sat on it, and sat. Then Mr. Gramsay got an idea. He found an egg that needed to be cared for, and he brought it to Roy and Silo's nest. Roy and Silo knew just what to do. They moved the egg to the center of their nest. Every day they turned it, so each side stayed warm. Some days, Roy sat while Silo went for food. Other days, it was Silo's turn to take care of their egg. Until one day, they heard a sound coming from inside their egg. Peep, 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 it said. Roy and Silo called back, squawk, squawk. Peep, peep, answered the egg. Suddenly, a tiny hole appeared in the egg's shell. And then, crack, out came their very own baby. She had fuzzy white feathers and a funny black beak. Now Roy and Silo were fathers. We'll call her Tango, Mr. Gramze decided, because it takes two to make a tango. Roy and Silo taught Tango how to sing for them when she was hungry. They fed her food from their beaks. They snuggled her in their nest at night. Tango was the very first penguin in the zoo to have two daddies. Soon, Tango grew strong enough to leave the nest. Roy and Silo took her for a swim, just like all the other penguin families and all the children who came to the zoo could see Tango and her two fathers playing in the penguin house with the other penguins. Hooray, Roy! Hooray, Silo! Welcome, Tango! They cheered. At night, the three penguins returned to their nest. There, they snuggled together, and, like all the other penguins in the penguin house, and all the other animals in the zoo, and all the families in the big city around them, they went to sleep.
5: Thank you, Robin, for introducing or reintroducing us to the story of Roy and Silo and Tango. And now we're going to sing together. We invite you to follow along with the lyrics that will appear on the screen as Tom leads us in singing two of the verses of hymn number 1008, When Our Heart is in a Holy Place. Thank you again to Eileen and Hope, who are stalwart members of our bookstore volunteer team, and also to staff member Robin, who will each offer a personal reflection this morning inspired by Banned Books Week. We begin with Eileen.
9: Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm- I am a writer, publisher, and book reviewer. So here's my take on book banning in 2021 in the US. In 2019, the total number of books published in the United States exceeded 4 million, including both self-published and commercially published books of all types. This is the most democratic publishing environment that has ever existed. Just about anyone with a computer can publish, distribute, and promote a book on any subject. Most of us don't want anyone choosing what we are are allowed to read. We think all ideas should be open for discussion. But we might not feel that way about a book of uh, child pornography or, or perhaps one promoting racism. When we talk about book banning, we mean organized attempts to to prevent a book's publication and sale. But there are far more insidious ways to ban a book. A friend living in a rural county in Arkansas looked for a book on evolution in his local library. Not finding one, he asked the librarian, who said they, they had no books on evolution, and directed him to books on creationism. He suggested that they order books on evolution. She refused. When the bookstore team orders books for the UUCC bookstore, we make selections based on whether we think the book will interest UUCC members, or whether Paige or Robin uh, will be using it in upcoming programs. We don't order every book offered by the UUA bookstore. Our intention, though, is not to ban the books or censor them, censor the ones we don't order, but all bookstores and libraries may carefully select what goes on their shelves. Most books never make the cut. And we don't call this banning, but the outcome is the same. Most established publishers require a writer to be represented by an agent. Agents accept manuscripts subjectively based on their preferences and taste, uh, what they see as trends, and on whether they guess the book will sell. If it meets their personal, highly subjective criteria, an agent may deign to represent, uh, uh, represent the book to publishers. Publishers are in business, which means the bottom line is the priority. Will the book sell? is the major question. Almost all manuscripts of the 1,000 submitted are rejected. It's not exactly banning books, but traditionally, the books available for us to read came through this model, which means that our selection is limited by the subjective tastes and preferences of agents and pub- publishers, all slaves to the bottom line, their guess will itself How many well-written, carefully constructed books don't make the cut? For authors of rejected manuscripts, those rejections may end their writing writing career and abolish their ideas to the recycling pile. Or the author may then turn to self-publishing. Controversial, unconventional, or just about any book uh, sometimes finds life this way. Uh, This includes Uh, Many well-known books uh, started out as self-published, including John Grisham's A Time to Kill, Fifty Shades of Grey, Peter Rabbit, and The Joy of Cooking. One effective way to help a book sell and thus enhance public interest and the finances of the author, the publisher, and the agent is to have some organization campaign to ban it. The resulting publicity is a lucrative boost to the bottom line.
10: Good morning. My name is Hope Vasholtz. My pronouns are she and her. I am pleased to share with you a recollection this morning. In my first year of college, A sociology professor required us to read a book from the list he provided and then to write a response paper. I took his list to the card catalog, wrote down several call numbers, proceeded to the stacks, and pulled a book. The content astonished and fascinated me. The book argued that women should have careers and should work for personal growth and advancement. It cited research studies to show that children cared for by by those other than mom would be just fine, even flourish. Now I was a small town girl who knew well the financial reasons women work outside the home. But this full throated call for careers and daycare was a bit shocking to find on the reading list of my Midwestern Lutheran College in 1961. I turned in my paper, and then came the telephone call from the professor. That book is not on the reading list. (laughs) As I started to explain that I wrote down the call numbers of the books on the list, I realized that a call number is a subject category and the first two letters of the author's last name, allowing multiple books with the same call number. Oh no, I likely took the book next to the assigned book. Kindly, he said, it's okay, honest mistake. But more importantly, I learned that interesting ideas come from books not on reading lists and not within my own range of interest. Now, admittedly, I have lived much of my life as an English teacher, a consumer and purveyor of reading lists and the canon. But I have also gained from the times I pulled the book next to the correct book. as when I recently said to a friend, I'm tired of this serious nonfiction I have been reading. Will you give me something of yours you know I would never pick up on my own? Ah, a Los Alamos mystery. To be honest, it's the UUC bookstore that has most tempted me and treated me. All those donations from professions, hobbies, passions, generations other than my own. Scholarly, escapist, poetic, tragic, yes, even quirky. One Sunday, I picked up The Firebrand and the First Lady. I had never heard of Pauli Murray, the firebrand of the title, but soon we will all know of her when the upcoming movie arrives. Like that book, my best choices have often been books I never expected to read. Maybe reading lists, even bestseller lists, and our own natural interests are a bit of book banning. Perhaps sometimes we should bypass the book we meant to choose and pull the book next to it.
7: Good morning again. I read books for lots of reasons. Many of the books I read are for professional reasons, theology books and education books, books about Unitarian Universalism, books about resilience and trauma, joy and sorrow. I also read books for enjoyment and escapism and I've been particularly fond of apocalyptic novels recently because at least I can say, hey, at least we don't have zombies. And I read pure escapism novels too because sometimes I just need to put the world aside and forget about racism and climate chaos and horrible laws being passed. I need to dream about a world that is kinder and gentler. I started working with a spiritual advisor a few years ago. And as part of that work was attempting to develop a daily spiritual practice. So I tried meditating unsuccessfully. I tried journaling unsuccessfully. And when my advisor asked me what I really loved to do, I replied, read books. And she suggested I try reading intentionally for at least half an hour a day. And at that point, I burst into tears because it had been such a long time when I'd made time for myself to read a book for simple pleasure and enjoyment. I was in the middle of credentialing, the world was falling apart, and I needed to keep up with events. And so all my reading at that time was professional. Making time to read novels returned an important part of my life to me at a time when I really needed it. So I'm curious, can you remember the first time you read a book that was controversial? I can, I was in middle school and my best friend's parents kept a book out in the open on the shelves in the living room that we still thought we had to sneak to read. Every sleepover, we would pull it out in the middle of the night with flashlights and read and talk about what we were reading. That book was titled, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. And it was filled with information that we decidedly were not learning about in school. 342 pages of forbidden topics that we were so very curious about. At the time, we thought we were being sneaky about reading it, but in retrospect, I can't help but wonder if that, uh, if that family had left the book out in the open to make sure we actually did have ready access to it so that we could find answers to questions that were considered medically accurate for the time. Many of the books that you can find on the American Library Association's banned book list are controversial or forbidden and, Almost all of those books have managed to make it to my personal library. Robert Heinlein wrote Stranger in a Strange Land. And while I was in high school, only the honors English students were allowed to read that book through school. And that book taught me to question sexual mores and religious proclamations. I had a book yanked out of my hands abruptly when I was visiting an aunt and uncle And that book was Gore Vidal's Myra Breckenridge. And it taught me to question patriarchy. I learned a lot about education and the lack of education by reading Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. It taught me how white-centric our history lessons are and how much I didn't know. All of these books were banned over the years. I wanted to see if I could figure out how long I've been participating in Banned Books Week. And the earliest reference that I could find was 2009 when I posted about it on Facebook, encouraging my friends to support an author who had been banned by purchasing a physical copy of the banned book. And over the years, banned books have had quite an impact on me. I was walking with my oldest daughter last week talking about banned books and I asked her what she remembered. And she did remember that I purchased books for them to read during this week, during their childhood and adolescent years. But what struck her in the moment was that the books had an influence on her that she actually found challenging to name. I'm sort of having the same trouble. You heard one of the books that profoundly influenced my children in their growing up years, and Tango Makes Three. It was published in 2005 and has made the top 10 list of banned books eight times since then, starting in 2006. My children grew up with that book and in small part helped them form their arguments in support of gay marriage. Even as younger children, they told their friends, yeah, huh? two girls or two boys can so get married. So the books we choose influence our thoughts. Most often for me, the band books have presented a viewpoint that was new and different for me, a culture that I didn't have much exposure to, a marginalized identity that I didn't always have strong knowledge about, a religion with which I was less familiar or of political viewpoint that I hadn't thought deeply about. And how fascinating it is that what I saw as an opportunity to learn more about a topic, others saw as offensive and tried to prevent people from learning about, especially their own children. And some of the banned books brought healing to me. How magical it can be to find out that others think the way I do. That others, even if they're fictional characters, have experiences like I've had. I've built empathy for others through books I've read. And I hope others have built empathy for me because of books that they've read. As a longtime rebel who has embraced counterculture for almost all of my life, I drew many of my thoughts from ideas I read about in science fiction books and history books that people attempted to ban. I can't help but wonder, how different might our world be if we encouraged reading of books that bring us new ideas and new knowledge? Thank you.
5: Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Eileen. Thank you, Hope. We are going to pause now to offer each of you the opportunity to share generously of your own financial bounty as we work together to influence good in this world. Tom will again offer his gift of music, and you are invited to give online or by placing checks or cash in the basket at the back of the sanctuary thank you all for your generosity as your gifts are now freely given and received
6: from the essay, The Censor in Each of Us, by Colum Toybean. First, that the urge to riot in a theater to stop actors being heard, the urge to ban books, the urge to threaten to cut subsidy, are almost built into our nature. They lurk always in the shadows, especially in societies where there are divisions, and pressures and fears, or sudden and uneasy change but maybe they lurk everywhere. Second, the urge to resist these urges, urges that can be both shadowy and substantial, both threatening and pressing, which weaken and poison the richness and potential of our lives requires single mindedness, vigilance, cunning, knowledge that the enemy is within as well as without an absolute belief in the idea of the glittering mind and the power of the shifting and uncertain image and a belief in the challenge of the word and the often awkward presence of the new. The doctrine that these things are fundamental to us, to our way of living in the world, to our humanity, means then that we must work using examples from the past toward the right for others as well as ourselves to be let alone, to imagine, to write, to read, to share, and to be heard.
5: Column Tobin observes that the enemy is within as well as without. I've been thinking about that observation a lot as it relates to Banned Books Week, especially since this annual event began about four decades ago as I was approaching my teen years. And in those years of my life, things were very tidy for me. In church, at home, in school, all the narratives reinforced the value, the goodness of the life that I led, white, U.S. American, suburban, Christian. The fiction I read at the time reinforced it. The school history lessons reinforced it. The Sunday morning messaging reinforced it. With my discretionary time, I chose to read books about happy white teenagers. And while I'm sure some of my school teachers assigned lessons that would have broadened my worldview significantly if I'd really taken them in, the only ones that stuck with me were ones that reinforced the worldview that was already shaping me. Other than Shakespeare plays, the only pieces of work I actually remember reading in their entirety, because I knew how to read just enough to get by, that I read in their entirety before college are Gone with the Wind, which was assigned as reading in eighth grade. Remember, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. And William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying. I could have gone all my life doing the same, reading only that which would validate what I already believed to be right and true. The enemy is within as well as without. Author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's childhood reading experience was at once similar and very different from mine. Born and raised in Nigeria for years, Adichie also read only books that reinforced a particular view of the world, and in her case, her reading reinforced a primarily white British one world. If you have not watched or listened to Adichie's 2009 TED Talk, I encourage you to do so. We're going to show three very brief clips from it this morning, but the entire 20-minute presentation is definitely worth the time. Her talk is about the danger of a single story. Show people as one thing, she says, as only one thing over and over again, and that is what they become. That is how to create a single story. A single story that Mexicans are abject immigrants that Africans are people who are half-devil, half-child, that a family who lives in poverty is only that, poor. We do it about people who are other from us, but we create single stories about and to ourselves, too. Here's what Adichie says about that.
11: What this demonstrates, I think, is how impressionable and vulnerable we are in the face of a story, particularly as children. Because all I had read were books in which characters were foreign, I had become convinced that books by their very nature had to have foreigners in them and had to be about things with which I could not personally identify. Now things changed when I discovered African books. There weren't many of them available and they weren't quite as easy to find as the foreign books. but. Because of writers like Chinua Achebe and Kamara Lai, I went through a mental shift in my perception of literature. I realized that people like me, girls with skin the color of chocolate, whose kinky hair could not form ponytails, could also exist in literature. I started to write about things I recognized. Now, I loved those American and British books I read. They stirred my imagination. They opened up new worlds for me but the unintended consequence was that I did not know that people like me could exist in literature. So what the discovery of African writers did for me was this, it saved me from having a single story of what-
5: Of what books are. In my childhood, I read stories that centered characters who were much like myself, in terms of race, nationality, culture, worldview. The writers of those stories were also much like me, or at least like the authority figures who were shaping the world in which I lived. My parents, the decision-makers in the school system, the clergy and Sunday school teachers in my beloved church, our elected leaders. They taught me that I and my people were good, that we deserved whatever we had, that we rightfully owned whatever we perceived to be ours, that our comfort and well-being were a priority, and that we were not obligated to consider the comfort and well-being of those whose lives were so very different from ours. And those stories also shaped what qualified as other, bad, wrong. And they were able to define other, bad, Wrong, because the writers had the power to craft a story that became a single and definitive story, reinforced over and over again. Later in her talk, Adichie speaks about this power.
11: It is impossible to talk about the single story without talking about power. There is a word, an Igbo word, that I think about whenever I think about the power structures of the world, and it is Nkale. It's a noun that loosely translates to to be greater than another. Like our economic and political worlds, stories too are defined by the principle of Nkale. How they are told, who tells them, when they are told, how many stories are told, are really dependent on power. Power is the ability not just to tell the story of another person, but to make it the definitive story of that person. The Palestinian poet, Murid Barghouti, writes that if you want to dispossess a people, the simplest way to do it is to tell their story and to start with secondly. Start the story with the arrows of the Native Americans and not with the arrival of the British, and you have an entirely different story. Start the story with the failure of the African state, and not with the colonial creation of the African state, and you have an entirely different story.
5: In the formative years of my own adolescence, many single stories were being reinforced for me. Single stories crafted by people with the power to make those stories the definitive ones with the power to present themselves as models of goodness, morality, heroism, and the power to present others as bad or dangerous or immoral. I'm grateful for the college assignment of Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, for the friend who gifted me Rita Mae Brown's Ruby Fruit Jungle, Those were early examples of stories that captured my attention and imagination in ways that opened my mind to a more complex view of the world, one that wasn't quite so tidy or binary, where good and bad weren't so easily distinguished, where US Americans weren't necessarily at the center of everything and certainly weren't always the heroes, where good people could be queer and Indian and poor and kinky and black. These days, I'm mostly, mostly amused by the idea of book banning because it seems silly and ridiculous to try to restrict anyone's access to information. And I think about what Colm Tobin said, that the enemy is within as well as without most of us do have access to whatever books and ideas and information we might want to acquire. We are not subject to the threat of banned books. So the real enemy is within us, that inner censor who drives what we choose to consume. Most of us have choice. We get to choose whether to reinforce what we already believe, or to challenge our own established perceptions and to expand our worldview by picking the next book on the shelf, as Hope suggested. And there are still forces who organize to restrict access to certain literature because of a particular worldview that demonizes that which is not in line with a particular and narrow morality. So as Tobin also said, we must work toward the right for others as well as ourselves to imagine, to write, to read, to share, and to be heard. Because, as Chimamanda Adichie says at near the end of her talk,
11: Stories matter. Many stories matter. Stories have been used to dispossess and to malign, but stories can also be used to empower and to humanize. Stories can break the dignity of a people, but stories can also repair that broken dignity.
5: We celebrate Banned Books Week because many stories matter stories of teens who are transgender, stories of those whose ancestors were enslaved, stories of surviving abuse and assault, stories that criticize police brutality, stories that contain curse words, stories that contain sex scenes, and all of those things describe elements of books that are on the current banned books list. Stories matter. In honor of Banned Books Week, Let's all choose a story that challenges rather than reinforces our own worldview and read it with an open and critical mind. And now let us sing again together. We're going to sing three verses of the hymn as tranquil streams. Will you rise in body or in spirit? Please join me now for a few moments of reflection and stillness and prayer. Holy One, God of our hearts, whom each of us knows by their own name, may we be held in the spirit of life and of love. May we be encouraged and have the courage to be people of bold faith in this world, not letting fear guide us, but rather living in hope and courage. May our tender, aching hearts be strengthened and healed as we mourn the loss of those we have loved, whose loss leaves us feeling empty and lonely. May those seeking care find healing, and may we celebrate the ways that we all care for one another. Let us share a few quiet moments that each of us might know the prayers held within. Blessed be. Amen. close with words again from Rebecca Solnit's essay, Silence is Broken. The task of calling things by their true names, of telling the truth to the best of our abilities, of knowing how we got here, of listening particularly to those who have been silenced in the past, of seeing how the myriad stories fit together and break apart of using any privilege we may have been handed to undo privilege or expand its scope is each of our tasks. It's how we make the world. Amen. So may it be. And be well. We'll see you next time.
4: Just yeah.